And I think that civil society probably needs to sit down and say, actually calling for more laws and more rules isn't the answer because we've got acres of them and they've given us this big problem. Uh, you know, we actually need new ethical behaviours amongst the many communities, be it lawyers, accountants, politicians, um, academics even, which recognise there are certain things we want not to happen um, and it isn't going to be laws which get us there. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. The role professional enablers play in transnational corruption schemes is rightly getting more attention than ever before. In this episode, we convened an expert group of academics and practitioners to talk through the different functional roles of enablers and the options available for raising professional standards. There's a particular focus here in the legal profession and the group discussed some of the ethical dilemmas lawyers face when confronted with corruption issues. We hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Liz David Barrett and I'm pleased to present a special episode of Kickback on the topic of so-called enablers. Uh, so this is a category that is talked about a lot recently in terms of thinking about grand corruption and kleptocracy. So we thought it's a good topic to interrogate on the podcast. And I've got with me some academic and practitioner colleagues here to help us analyse and think about this topic. So I've got with me Tenna Prelitz, Guy Berenger and Robert Barrington, and I'm going to ask them to say hello and introduce themselves briefly as a start. So Tenna, can we start with you? Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is uh, Tana Prelitz. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Lieka in Croatia, and I've been dealing with the topic of transnational kleptocracy and of uh, the enablers of corruption for about the past four years, I think, um, including as a research fellow at the University of Oxford. That's great. Thanks, Tana. We're really delighted to have you here today. Guy, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah. Hi. Thank you very much for having me, Guy Berenger. My first career. 30 years was as a city M&A lawyer at a, a big global city law firm. Um, some of the listeners may then think I switched from the dark side to the uh, perhaps less dark side. Um, since then, the last uh, 15 years or so, I've been largely involved in access to justice issues insofar as my legal career has gone. The, the reason I think I'm here, apart from providing um, shooting practice against the city, uh, is because uh, with Robert, who will speak in a second, I'm chairing a new task force, which is looking at uh, the, the rules which surround how city law firms, particularly solicitors firms, take on clients who may uh, have a, con a connection uh, or whose funding may have a connection with the proceeds of kleptocracy and grand corruption. So that's me. That's great. Thanks very much, Guy, for being here. Uh, and Robert, over to you. Hi, I'm Robert Barrington. I'm a professor at the Centre for the Study of Corruption in the University of Sussex. Um, I slightly straddle the practitioner and academic sides because um, prior to coming to Sussex, I was long associated with Transparency International. And as Guy said, uh, I'm now deputy chair to his chairing of the task force on business ethics and the legal profession. That's great. Thanks, Robert. 
Uh, so, Robert, I wonder if I could start with you just to kick us off by describing what you mean by enablers or what the anti-corruption community often means by the term. I know it's pretty con- controversial with those people who get called enablers. So where did the, the language come from? When did we start talking about this? Thank you, Liz. I think the the concept came before the language in many ways. And the concept really originated um, with FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which realized that um, having been set up to deal with money laundering, then of course, financial institutions are critical in money laundering, as are the global financial centers. But also there was this um, category of organizations that were critical part of um, flows of money around the world, but weren't financial institutions. So it gave them the very difficult acronym DNFBPs, Designated Non-Financial Businesses and Professions. And those included everything from um, casinos and um, estate agents through to uh, lawyers and accountants, uh, encompassing on the way people like dealers in precious metals and stones and trust and company service providers and so on. So there was an acknowledgement right from the outset that um, there was a group of people all lumped together under this odd acronym uh, who were important somehow in global financial flows and particularly what are sometimes called IFF's illicit financial flows. Well, uh, wind on to the early 2000s and the tax justice community started talking about um, these individuals as professional enablers uh, because they were enabling um, the flows of these IFFs. This was uh, quite soon adopted by anti-corruption campaigners who uh, saw that whenever they came up against kleptocrats or people involved in grand corruption, then the problem again wasn't simply that large amounts of money was flowing around the financial system, it's that the there were a small number of uh, people and firms who seemed to be involved in the transactions, making them happen, uh, oiling the wheels. Now, those individuals referred to themselves, and FATF and other bodies like the OECD have started to refer to them as gatekeepers. But this less flattering term of professional enablers uh, migrated from the, the tax justice community to the anti-corruption community. And it was very rapidly adopted, not just by anti-corruption campaigners, but interestingly, by law enforcement authorities and a number of national anti-corruption strategies, including uh, that of the United States and the, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, So um, this term has entered sort of common parlance, as it were. It's fiercely resisted by lots of those who are described as professional enablers. They they push back and much prefer the designation of uh, gatekeepers. Probably the the final thing I'll say on the matter is that although it's uh, contested territory, I think the really interesting thing is not the description, not the, the wording, but actually the function. And whether we're talking about people who are enabling criminality, Uh, which, of course, is the fundamental um, premise of the Financial Action Task Force type approach of money laundering, or whether we're talking about people who enable other areas of the proceeds of corruption, which aren't possible to pin down to criminal action uh, for generating the funds in the first place. So that's a further debate, is are we talking about um, people who are enabling simply criminality or maybe uh, enabling kleptocracy and grand corruption in a way that uh, isn't provably criminal? So I see that the debate started with the FATF coming up with DNFPBs and their role in IFFs. I'm not surprised that we've switched to the term enablers. Um, That's much easier to to talk about and to think about. 
Um, so thanks, Robert, for explaining the the concept as well as the the language around it. I guess what would be good to get a handle on is how important uh, these so-called professional enablers are, or gatekeepers or DNFPBs, in the whole landscape of grand corruption and kleptocracy. So how important a role are they playing and, and therefore how um, important is it to tackle them in trying to ta- tackle grand corruption and kleptocracy? And I wonder if I could start with you, Tenna, um, for your take on this. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Uh, so as both you and Robert mentioned, enablers don't really like to be called enablers. But uh, the fact of the matter is that there is an enabling going on here, meaning that there are categories of service provision that de facto enable money to become legal and reputations to become respectable, right? And with this kind of dual effect, they kind of, you know, transpose an individual which might have been unsavory beforehand into an engaged global citizen. And this kind of transnational effect of uh, of um, making, you know, both uh, uh, funds, money, um, legal and reputations respectable is at the core of what we call transnational kleptocracy. And I think it's especially important also to look at it from uh, a little bit of a historical perspective, especially if we're talking about the UK. So in the UK, there has been a huge rise in service provision after the Second World War. And we have a situation in which um, you have... Uh, uh, the end of two empires, so to speak, because the end of the British Empire has also encountered the end of uh, what we might call the the Soviet Empire. Um, In the former Soviet Union, fortunes were suddenly made overnight and a class of uh, new turbo capitalists has emerged um, with practices that were very often very dubious. Now, Britain has at the same time, um, you know, the financial services in Britain were were very, um, were developing very, uh, very quickly. It has made good use, I would say, um, uh, Britain of its also full its networks throughout the world to uh, facilitate this. But uh, alongside with, you know, with, with financial services, we have also a coterie of other industries that emerges, for instance, in migration law, um, setting up uh, uh, what are called golden passports and golden visas, so allowing people to migrate, yeah, um, libel law, allowing some individuals to attack their critics, PR services that go with it, business intelligence, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of this full service provision that can absolutely be within the realm of what is legal. And yet, if, uh, you know, if we open up the space to kind of all <laughs> uh, the money and the funds uh, um, uh, coming from wherever they are in the world, it, they might be problematic. Now, um, here I think it's uh, it's quite an important um, point to consider between what is legal and what is what is illegal and what is illicit, because very often um, we hear, um, you know, well, the legal profession and other service uh, um, professionals saying about what we do is absolutely legal. And that's actually very often true. Uh, the point is that the way uh, this boom of service provision has occurred encounters uh, a space which is without the rule of law. So in other words, we know that the UK is by and large regulated by the, ru- by the rule of law. But if the funds are coming from kleptocracies or places where grand corruption is the norm and therefore corruption is very often legalized, 
you might have a situation in which these funds funds might be formally speaking legal, right? Because they are legalized, for instance, by politicized judgments. But at the same time, we might, in our you know conception, absolutely put them within the realm of what is illicit. Yeah. So this is one of these concepts that uh, academia and also international organizations are still trying to grapple with and kind of define them in order to be able to measure them. But I think, you know, at the at, at the core, um, uh, this is the point that enabling uh, basically happens when uh, you make uh, you make, you know, fortunes that were made in in dubious ways. Um, you transport them to a situation of rule of law. So putting them absolutely within the realm of what is legal. And you make the individuals who are attached to them respectable and uh, uh, kind of fully sanctioned within um, the global elite. Great. Thanks, Tana. So I think, you know, you've explained really well how people coming from a low rule of law environment are able to then actually benefit and exploit the the, the high rule of law environments. Um, so this sort of global aspect of transnational kleptocracy. Um, Guy, do you have anything to, to add there? So a couple of points. Um, Tena mentioned this kind of historical perspective. Do you agree with that? Having sort of been inside inside the the um, the legal profession, how did that that look from from your perspective? Yes, the, the, you won't be surprised to hear that I, I have a few qualifications to make. I think relation to what Tena said, uh, only because the, the my purpose in this and actually task force Robert and I are on is to try to achieve outcomes and I think you know the starting point or it may be a finishing point isn't the term enabling actually gets in the way of achieving outcomes and I'll explain why in a second the one point I would make is um you you, you should be slow to conflate cleaning money and whitewashing reputations I think you'll find that when people talk about professional enablers yeah, they're talking about people who may well have a have a significant role in money flows, and uh, that that money is often, uh, as Tan said, not illicit. I don't think they have a particularly significant role in um, improving people's reputations. That tends to be a rather different set of enablers uh, who do legitimise people, uh, and I, I think it, it's it's unhelpful to conflate those two, but. The, the reason why I said that the term itself, you know, you could debate its appropriateness and actual absolute definition. It produces a defensive reaction, which, in fact, simply confuses the issue further. We are talking in, in simple terms, not really about the flow of illegal funds, because you've got regimes set up to, to detail those. When you look at the academic literature, it's largely bemoaning the fact that um, those defences of legitimacy or illegitimacy don't work. And you have flowing through them these rather large um, amounts of, uh, of, of money. And people say, well, what can you do about that? And th there are a number of reasons for doing something about it. One would relate to the rule of law. Uh, another would uh, relate to genuine grievance in countries of origin. Interestingly, the third would relate to the uh, the reputation of the city of London, which amongst its international competitors is viewed as uh, rather porous and rather too easy a place for funds of dubious origin to uh, to penetrate. 
And so, you know, you look at all these things, say, how are you going to motivate change here? I think that the use of the term enablers is not going to, because we can come to a minute to how the legal profession normally defends itself, but it normally raises a series of defenses which actually relate to the criminal end of it. I think the significant problem, which it just so happens, is actually the issue that our task force is dealing with, not the criminal side, but in fact, if you like, in modern parts, the lawful but awful side of it. How do you address that? And the analysis there is, I think, rather rather more complex. I'll pause for a breath. Okay, thanks. Um, Tenna, I'm going to come back to you in a second in case you want to add anything on that kind of, you know, the reputational laundering side of things and how it fits. But I want to just go to Robert now um, and ask Robert, do you have anything to add on this this point around the kind of um, historical evolution of this um, or the, the sort of importance now of this group in grand corruption? Yes, a couple of points. And really going back to your original question, which was uh, how important uh, a role do they play in terms of facilitating kleptocracy and grand corruption? Well, you know, from one aspect, you could say that they play very little role because uh, they're not, if you address the issue of enablers, if we accept that they exist, then you're not actually addressing the original kleptocracy and grand corruption. For somebody who's um, stolen or misappropriated or got hold of, um, under dubious circumstances, large amounts of money in their home country, then we see that they often want to move it somewhere else. Uh, So you're not preventing them from misappropriating the money in the first place, but you are trying to tackle the fact that they want to move it somewhere else. Uh, And the enablers do, I think it's beyond doubt, play a really significant role in doing that, because if they didn't exist, the money couldn't move. Um, So we have to accept, I think, they play a very significant role. The question is, if you start tackling them, what does that do? Well, you know, does it mean that they only keep their money at home under the mattress? Probably not. Does it mean that they'll go to um, other jurisdictions where this isn't being tackled quite so um, uh, quite so firmly? Um, and people talk, for example, about Dubai as um, a popular destination for um, Russia and Russian money since the sanctions have been uh, implemented uh, after the start of the Ukraine war. So the point I'm really trying to get at there is that when we're looking at the role of enablers in tackling kleptocracy and grand corruption, it might tackle it to a limited extent in terms of saying, well, you know, you can't put your money here anymore, but it's not tackling the fundamental problem. Having said that, I think it is very well worthwhile doing because it sheds more light on the global financial flows. It um, uh, puts them in an uncomfortable spotlight where they clearly don't want to be. Um, And if it is possible to um, uh, remove the assets and then um, in some uh, way return them to the victims that of course is um you know ultimately what uh one would want to achieve but it doesn't stop people being kleptocrats or uh, grandly corrupt and that of course has to go hand in hand with trying to stop the uh the financial flows and the enablers it seems to me it's a little bit like the debate around um trying to enforce anti-bribery laws in business that you know, we know that in bribery, there are two parts. There's a, a government acceptor of bribe and there's a, a business payer of bribe in, in most situations. But essentially, there was a, a feeling that it was very difficult to get purchase on that demand side um, in many countries. So on the, the people accepting the bribes. But it was easier to go after the companies where they were often operating in jurisdictions where there was high rule of law. So it seems to me a bit equivalent um, so I, I take the point that you're not necessarily going after the initial illicit act, but by 
taking this other step where we have got some potentially some regulatory control, we might achieve something. Is that a, a fair analogy? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. And I, you know, would emphasize the fact that it, you're not going after the original corruption doesn't mean don't do it. You know, you really do need to go after the illicit financial flows and the enablers. But it is part of a bigger picture. So I think it's worthwhile um, understanding that. It's also, you know, a bit as as Guy said, it, it's a question for the um, the destination countries. You know, how complicit do you want to be in other people's corruption? And I think, um, uh, you know, that's about the reputation of uh, yourself as a, as a country and, you know, maybe as a financial centre like the city. Uh, but it's also beyond reputation. It's about, you know, what, what you stand for, what values you have. And I think it's very important that we stick to those values in um, in the international arena. And we don't just say, um, wash our hands and say, oh, well, you know, because kleptocrats so-and-so has stolen loads of money, we might as well let it come here. Uh, so, you know, I do think you've got to act on it, even if it's not going to solve um, that, uh, that um, fundamental problem. Okay, so Tenna, I'd like to ask you about your research. I don't know if there's anything you you wanted to add around the sort of reputational um, point that Guy was raising, but also if you could just tell us about your recent uh, research on this topic, what you did, what you found out. Yeah, so in response to the conflation of money laundering and reputation laundering, um, I agree that it's important to um, to be clear about the different uh, activities um, that uh, enabling contains in itself. But uh, I absolutely strongly believe that uh, the two, uh, so the laundering of money and reputations, uh, should be seen um, as connected because there are the instances in which they are is there are just really really many. So in other words, I'm not saying that the very same individuals do both of them, uh, but that there are sets of categories of uh, of uh, individuals that perform different actions. Sometimes uh, it happens that the same fixer, so to speak, can um, can get to, to more than one of these activity, but it's not necessary for it so. And yet, I don't think that we can speak about conflation. We need to speak about, however, uh, a strong correlation between the two. Uh, I mean, just a few examples. Political influencing is a big one. Um, many of our listeners will have heard about uh, the caviar diplomacy scandal by Azerbaijan, in which uh, um, the Azerbaijan ruling elite has bribed politicians at the Council of Europe, uh, and for which, I mean, this is demonstrated, they have gone in jail for that, right? So this was in order to obtain uh, a better image of their country. So this more than reputation laundering is authoritarian image management. So let's say a very high high level of reputation laundering, yeah. I mean, the same ruling elite has been demonstrated to have uh, clearly laundered its money uh, through real estate. Only in London, um, hundreds uh, of million, if not billions of uh, pounds um, have been found to be linked uh, to the so-called Azerbaijani laundromat. So we can see how these uh, uh, dubious funds or laundered funds in this case and the burnishing of reputations um, of individuals and sometimes even of countries are clearly connected. There are many other instances. For instance, uh, um, in the UK, uh, the Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Firtash has used his donations uh, to uh, Cambridge in order to assert his standing in court to be able to sue the Kiev Post, which had criticized him for his business practices. So you see how this kind of uh, attempting to um, crack down on criticism 
that, that looks at, uh, at the business practices of certain individuals goes sometimes hand in hand with attempts to burnish reputations, um, either through philanthropic donations or more widely um, or more brazenly really uh, through through political donations uh, or bribery as well. Um, so uh, Liz, you, you also... No, so please tell us about your research. Yeah, so I mean, linking to that, I think that one important point that uh, some of my colleagues and I have been trying to to make is that uh, although we often think about uh, enabling as uh, uh, being an exception to the rule, as having some bad apples that um, uh, facilitate it, the real problem is that it has become um, to a certain extent, systemic. Um, so uh, my colleague Ricardo Suarez de Oliveira, professor at um, uh, at Oxford, and I have uh, published an article in which we try to nuance uh, a bit uh, and uh, define what we mean by enabling practices. And we have divided uh, in in two big categories the, the activity of enablers, calling them upstream and downstream, meaning that uh, we we believe that. Often there are in the process tracing chain of a, um, a political exposed person or of a kleptocrat, there are fixers at the beginning of their journey. And these are those that we are usually used to see as the bad apples. Um, these are the, um, the service providers that uh, go in there with their eyes wide open, who very often uh, even lie on behalf of their client. So in other words, were those that you know we could call the bad guys. They do sometimes get in trouble and Although the judgments, the guilty verdicts are few and far between, we have seen a few few instances in which uh, law enforcement has been effective in this case. And yet, by analyzing the uh, trajectories of uh, um, uh, of individuals who have laundered money in uh, the UK and in the West, we've also seen that in very many occasions, after this first step in which uh, money is facilitated um, uh, by by such fixers, by individuals who brazenly assist their clients, we have a second step that we call of downstream enabling, um, in which other service providers can claim the benefit of the doubt and get into a situation that is, so so to speak, already half clean, right? So in that sense, their activity might not be illegal at all. And yet, uh, it is important to see it as part of the systemic process in which not only a few bad apples participate, but that unfortunately extends also to a much larger uh, category of professionals. Great, thanks very much. So, Guy, I'm going to come to you next. So, the the picture that Tena has painted is of some enablers, particularly these downstream enablers where they might be able to sort of claim plausible deniability. It's a a little bit of grey area in terms of whether it's illegal or not, but you might want to call it unethical. Um, And she's talked about that often being systemic uh, or becoming systemic. Now, obviously, lawyers are just one category of this group. But uh, given your um, expertise, could you sort of tell us something about what the legal profession might say to those kinds of quite harsh charges um, of sort of systemic complicity, at least in in grand corruption? Yeah, certainly. The uh, because as just been explained, actually, there are all sorts of um, 
downstream enablers actually I mean ironically academic institutions are probably the most the most egregious examples because they ought to know better and don't but that's not what we're here to talk about the interesting issue is I think the bulk of the problem is perfectly legitimate it's not a gray area it's legal but it's wholly undesirable so what you do about that now the 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 the, the, the example of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the consequences it had in terms of sanctions, businesses and individuals was very instructive because the legal profession sort of stood up and said, oh gosh, you know, this is, uh, this is a matter of access to justice. Now, that would be true if you're talking about somebody uh, who is being sanctioned by a state or somebody whose assets are about to be expropriated by a state or a state body. But actually, the the bulk of circumstances here, that wasn't what was happening at all. Access to justice arguments and the, if you like, um, the the ancillary arguments about lawyers just being neutral technicians for their clients' interests, without which the rule of law falls away. Those arguments are all absolutely correct in relation to criminal matters. They are not, I think, correct, or at least I've been searching for an access to justice principle uh, which says that um, I've got a, a right to legal representation to enable me to acquire uh, a large yacht or a large work of art or a country estate or, frankly, anything else, or to do a joint venture or to do a bond issue. Um, uh, I have not found the uh, the principle which says that's an access to justice issue. I don't think it exists. And so one of the problems with the... Uh, with going back to what I said at the beginning about the way the debate was framed, it was framed in a rather clumsy way in relation to enablers with this suggestion that you're enabling illicit activity, which enabled um, the profession to say, well, no, that's not right because of these principles of access to justice. Actually, the real challenge here is how do you promote new standards of ethical behavior, which say there are certain things which are clearly undesirable. And the movement of uh, the, the, the permissible legal movement of monies in certain circumstances is one of them. Uh, and the fact that uh, we've got you know, acres of money laundering legislation, um, if you take, for example, unexplained wealth orders, which were introduced not many years ago, um, you should always be uh, rather dubious when a politician uh, in a democracy says something along the lines of, we're adopting a hard line, we're coming to get you, there's no place to hide. If that's said in a totalitarian democracy, a totalitarian regime, it's true. In a democracy, it normally means there's about to be some sort of PR stunt, which will prove to be a disaster. And so unexplained wealth orders are very interesting because that gives you sort of the second. So the first part of the issue is you get slightly, uh, the sort of chaff is thrown up about access to justice and in 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 non-criminal matters, that's not right. The second thing you get, though, is in this sort of criminal sphere, you get what is sort of normally referred to as inequality of arms. And so you, uh, the unexplained wealth order saga is a terrible example of this because you get an under-resourced enforcement agency being given the runaround by uh, the smart city lawyers who are not doing anything unlawful or illegal. Because otherwise, you know, this would, these would be, because unexplained wealth orders are actually sort of civil actions for recoveries of monies. They're not criminal actions, although they're sort of quasi-criminal. Um, so it's a sort of keystone cops outcome of 
clever city people, 10, um, paroled, plodding national crime agency, nil. And that does nobody any good. So I think we need to clear the debate away from the, the red herrings of access to justice and say we're not talking about criminal issues here. And I think that civil society probably needs to sit down and say, actually calling for more laws and more rules isn't the answer because we've got acres of them and they've given us this big problem. Uh, you know, we actually need new ethical behaviours amongst the many communities, be it lawyers, accountants, politicians, um, academics even, which recognise there are certain things we want not to happen um, and it isn't going to be laws which get us there. That doesn't give you the answer how you do get there, but it, it's it's a complex issue. I mean, Guy, isn't that particularly controversial perhaps with lawyers? So essentially you're saying, you know, we shouldn't be concerned with just what is legal, we should be concerned with what is ethical. And, you know, I think you know, that's something that a lot of people might dispute, but I imagine particularly lawyers. Well, Liz, we will find out with as our um, task force proceeds, because whilst it is absolutely true to say we're only be going short period of time, we're not going to come up with a, a conclusion saying the current situation is great and should continue. The degree to which my Christmas card list diminishes um, I think we'll probably give you the answer to that question. I think within the legal profession, certainly the commercial end, you will actually find uh, a, a significant majority who, when you don't corner them by saying you're an enabler, you, you're the bad guy, say, actually, what we would really love to have was some clarity about how we should behave. And undoubtedly, that clarity will uh, will result uh, in a more restrictive approach as to the business they take on. But, that you know, I think they will welcome that. But, yes, we'll, we'll find out uh, how, how um, evidently they do welcome it. Robert may have a view on that. Yeah, Robert, I'd like to come to you next. Any, any sort of responses you want to make here, but also just moving on a little bit to think about what can be done. You've been thinking about this issue for a long time. So any thoughts, too, on on how to uh, change the uh, the nature of the debate. Yes, a few. But before getting to that, I just want to respond to the question you asked Guy, really, which is, you know, what, what about framing this as an access to justice issue and, you know, the, the legal profession talking about the right to representation and lawyers as technicians and don't confuse the lawyer with the client and all, all these, as Guy said, defensive reactions that come out very quickly from the legal profession. What's interested me is I've looked a little bit more in detail at this is um, you've got sort of parallel literatures in different disciplines going on. Um, so on the one hand, in the discipline we're familiar with, you you have writers like um, Tenner and Ricardo and others we've mentioned, who are looking at very specifically the issue of professional enablers. You also have the parallel literature on legal ethics, which has been very interesting to get into, writers like Stephen Vaughan and Richard Moorhead. And they've looked a lot, lot at the question of exactly, you know, are lawyers simply technicians or do they have wider responsibilities to the public interest? Uh, and if so, how do you reflect that, uh, the regulatory guidance that is given to the legal profession? They have often been coming at it from a very different point of view, and they've looked at um, issues like uh, environmental issues and uh, human rights, uh, particularly around climate change. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of discussion, just as there has been um, uh, of about lawyers representing 
kleptocrats and um, corrupt oligarchs and so on about lawyers representing oil companies and you know how does that square with what they have said publicly about their um, commitment to what are now known as ESG issues so you know I think it's worthwhile saying that this um, question about the role of lawyers and how lawyers relate to the public interest and not simply the interest of their clients um, is part of a broader debate around um, climate change and human rights and you know other themes and I have to admit I, I've become much more aware of that since I've looked at the literature on legal ethics which is really uh, quite lively at the moment uh, particularly those two writers I mentioned Stephen Vaughan and Richard Moorhead who um, who have uh, looked a lot at these uh, these issues and I think one can relate those back to um, our discussion on enablers. So in terms of, um, you know, ways forward and what one might do about this, I think there are sort of three tiers of solution. Um, there's the legislative solution, there's, there are regulatory solutions, and there are voluntary or self-regulatory solutions. Now, which is right? I think we don't quite know yet. I, I realise, as Guy said, that most of um, the legal profession are going to be averse to a legislative solution. And that has indeed really pretty much failed to solve the problem of money laundering over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, albeit progress has been made. But we know that a number of, um, certainly in the UK, but I think also in the US, a number of parliamentarians, uh, uh, those in Congress are interested in this as a subject. So they typically resort to legislative solutions because that's their bread and butter. We also know that regulators, both in this country and elsewhere in the world, um, are interested. Uh, but I don't think we have a sense of what what shape a regulatory solution looks like. And I think that's maybe some territory that's very interesting um, to explore, not in this conversation, but beyond this. And then the self-regulatory approach, which um, I think Guy is um, uh, outlining, uh, is very attractive in a number of ways, because um, one can see that the people we want to change might sign up to it. But of course, that does depend on the people who want to change signing up to it and then changing. Um, so I suspect that civil society will be quite um, wary of uh, solely self-regulatory solutions adopted by the people they feel have been part of this problem and have um, been a bit defensive when uh, tackled about it. So, you know, I think uh, to um, summarise, it is not going to be easy to find some solutions to this, but they're, you know, they are there, they're always there somewhere. It's a matter of uh, really trying to drill down into what they might be. I think it might coalesce more around the regulatory space, or at least as much around the regulatory space as the self-regulatory space, and I think there is an opportunity for um, some jurisdiction, maybe the UK, maybe elsewhere, to take quite a lead in this. The you know the downside is that your business might migrate to other jurisdictions. Um, the upside is that um, you know you might set an international standard which you are then well equipped to uh, to lead on. Um, so you know time will tell, but I think there'll be a lot of action on this in the next two or three years, and um, and probably in the UK. Thanks, Robert. Um, Guy, I want to ask you about that you know, prospect for self-regulation. Um, I'm, I think, you know, analytically, self-regulation is a, a very nice idea. Um, it's the profession regulating itself. The profession knows what's involved and and has the kind of expertise. But also, and really importantly, actually, self-regulation is going to be a lot more efficient if it works yeah that's you know, you don't need some big expensive regulator to to come and monitor and try and observe what's happening people are doing the right thing for the right reasons that's the kind of promise of self-regulation is that realistic and how do we get there no i don't think it is actually um <laughs> in a word uh and certainly wouldn't be credible i mean robert and i think uh, our, our aim on our task force, which has civil society 
academia and practitioners is to be a sort of bridge amongst them, uh, which I would think it probably means if you bridge, everybody walks over you, which I hope won't happen. But uh, I, I think, you know, when you're categorizing the types of response, always remember that actually you can have a hybrid response. And one of the examples I sort of like to give people on equality of arms is the city approach to mergers and acquisitions, which is the world I used to know, where um, the city takeover code began life as a, as a voluntary code, but it ended up with a sort of statutory underpinning. It worked because city firms, banks, lawyers, accountants all put some of their best people into the body which was policing it. So, you know, there's no sense. It's not like unexplained wealth orders where you turn up and bamboozle the takeover panel because actually half of them know more about it than, than you do. So, that, that, you know, there are ways forward there which actually don't fit neatly into any one of those solutions. But I do think for that there is a... That, this may surprise people um, in terms of how lawyers conduct themselves in the broadest possible sense. There's not a great deal of guidance. There are references to maintaining the rule of law to the public interest, but those are very contested and contestable concepts. And people are saying, well, look, it's fine. But what does that mean when this client turns up uh, through the door and they haven't done any, anything unlawful? How am I meant to interpret that? So uh, the, the, you know, the commentators Robert referred to um, Stephen Vaughan, Richard Moorhead, are actually sort of beginning to say, we need to populate this space with rather clearer and more, uh, with more lucid and precise ethical thinking, because at the moment, the concepts we've got there just don't do the job. They're, they're undoubtedly correct. Who could argue with public interest or maintaining the rule of law or the credibility of the justice system? And it's fairness, but actually, what do, what does that mean? Um, so, the, you know, there's an awful lot of work there. So, there's a range of things which uh, I think are going to have to be addressed relatively rapidly here. That's great, thanks. And um, Tenor, did you have any thoughts on what steps we need to take to um, to regulate this sphere, or indeed on you know whether we need more research and um, empirical investigation? Yeah, I wanted to go back to the um, unexplained wealth orders that were mentioned earlier, um, the UWOs. Um, so if you look at which are the UWOs that have been successful, unfortunately, the number is one. And uh, the only one that was successful was against the Hajiev spouses. Um, and the interesting thing about uh, this case was that they had already fallen out of grace with the ruling elite in their home country. Yeah, uh, so the husband was already in jail when um, when they were convicted. Uh, this case contrasts quite a lot with that of uh, Darika Nazarbayeva. Um, in fact, a lot of the details are are broadly similar, um, and yet um, in this case, um, Nazarbayeva was part and parcel of the ruling elite uh, once it happened, and um, she was presented as a you know as a highly successful businesswoman. Um, her ex-husband uh, um, was, uh, I mean, in the judgment, it was it was said that notwithstanding his criminality. Um, he did. Uh, um, he was a, a businessman uh, that 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 did some, you know, uh, positive things and so on and so forth. So, the point here being that there is a certain incumbency advantage at um, at play, unfortunately, for those who can afford 
very high level legal uh, legal service. So, you know, if we're speaking about access to justice, we also need to recognize the fact that uh, different uh, uh, paychecks and different availability of funds can, can really buy you um, a very high quality legal service provision. And that's a contrast a lot also with the underfundedness of, um, uh, of a lot of the institutions that are, are there to, to tackle this problem as, as guys has, has actually um, set out. Um, so um, in a way, um, what should be done here? I think that, you know, with, with this example, a few, um, uh, a few points uh, come to mind. So uh, one thing that, uh, that did not, um, that, that is still lacking is uh, really to fund uh, the NCA and other institutions properly. So, you know, increasing the funds in that sense. Yeah. Uh, the Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. I think Guy wanted to come in on that point. And so only so I didn't mean to interrupt Alex. Absolutely right with this. But the thing I would say, going back just to the example of the the, the takeover uh, panel, why it worked, it wasn't just money, it was expertise. And um, the city firms, um, it's unwise to tell them what to do, I suppose, because then they won't like that. But um, that they really will be very well advised to say, looking at that model, they, and this goes for accounting firms, banks, as well as law firms, should pr be providing the expertise to, in this case, the national crime, but whoever is the enforcement agency, because the, 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 the credibility of the city depends on it working. And the fact that it doesn't work, it actually um, it, it damages the credibility of the city and damages the world they are in. Um, and it's getting people beyond the sort of the immediate problem is, oh, well, you know, there's a client here that you're allowed to represent, you're allowed to make these arguments, and the enforcement agency, frankly, is not good enough. Beyond that, saying, but that does you no good. You've actually got to provide the expertise to make sure this system is a fair one, one that works. Sorry, Taylor, that's it. it was just to say it's, it's more than just money. And um, the only people who've got the solution are the people in the city themselves. Right. I think, I mean, I completely agree. And it actually ties in with the second point that I wanted to make, uh, which is that uh, within the judicial process to make it work properly, you need to take on board local knowledge. So in other words, if you don't have somebody explaining to you in detail what the political economy of Azerbaijan, what the political economy of Kazakhstan is, you might well have judgments that are skewed that present, uh, in this case, this uh, this person as a uh, you know upstanding businesswoman rather than the daughter of uh, um, the the ruler uh, with an ex-husband that engage in all sorts of uh, criminal business practices. Right. So I absolutely agree with you on that. Taking on board uh, local knowledge in the form of expertise um, within the law firms, as you mentioned, and within the investigating institutions and within the judiciary is, is absolutely key. Um, but third and last point, um, I would once again actually like to agree with you, Guy, because I do think that ethical considerations are front and center here. So with both Guy and, and Robert, they, they both mentioned that. Um, so my colleagues, John Hedershaw, Tom Main, and I are um, currently finalizing final draft in place uh, a book called professional indulgences and we use this metaphor of the medieval indulgences as remittances of sins in exchange for money as uh, a way to uh, make a comparison with the modern day 
indulgences uh, that are that are um, provided within the um, the sphere of transnational kleptocracy. Uh, so we absolutely um, agree um, in a, in a way that uh, the matter at its core is not only technical, it's not only legal, but it it is ethical because it reflects um, um, a pervasive culture and reflects a system in which we live today. Um, and that uh, um, and that in, in a way, the revolution must come from the inside. So absolutely, I do believe that, uh, um, you know, that the, the, the classes of service provision uh, can and must be part of the solution, both with self-regulation, but as you also mentioned, I also believe that, self-regulation is in itself not enough. So there needs to be coordinated action to really push this uh, ethical standards to make a complete leap and to take us to a situation in which there won't be even a question of whether I will take this, you know, whether this uh, this area is uh, is kind of, uh, yeah, well, it is legal, so I'm ticking this box, so I'm going forward with it. But it, it will be a, an instant reaction that um, uh, doing, you know, uh, providing such a service uh, um, in that situation would not be desirable by themselves and by their peers. That's great. Thanks, Tenna. So I'm afraid we are out of time, but I just think this was a, a really great conversation. Um, pleased to see so much agreement in the room, as well as some um, healthy disagreement, I think. And I think a couple of things that really stood out for me um, that are sort of bigger questions that we're often dealing with in anti-corruption. So this tension over how you change behaviour and whether you need to do this through a kind of heavy handed external um, enforcement regulator kind of approach or whether you can have much more um, coming up from the um, the the almost grassroots of a profession, uh, internally driven, voluntary self-regulation. I think that's a big topic. And then the other big topic here is the kind of transnational versus national. And I think that really you see the tension here between um, a sort of transnational crime, then national legal uh, systems and frameworks and courts that are used to try to go after this with with different norms and expectations and the ability of people to kind of surf around um, and pick the one that, that suits their interests. So that a really interesting aspect of the globalization um, of corruption, I think. Thank you all so much for, for giving up the time for the podcast. And um, we'll call it a day.